Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from the Word. Yeah, and, and drink LucasAid. Do then drink LucasAid? LucasAid used to be a drink for invalids. Now it's a drink for athletic, athletic superheroes. Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah, it's funny. Do you remember? Yeah. It used to be what you brought in hospital. So I've been I've been soliciting from the massive um, contributions and questions. Okay. Points of order that they care to raise. First one I've got here from Marple Leaf. It says, "What a nice new ad on the iTunes front page." How much did you pay for that? Zero pence. The Z- absolutely zero pence. They, they, they've got a huge picture of me and Mark glowering out. You've not seen this, have you, Mark? I think I have. Is it the one? Uh, yeah, it's just I the sent two you a screen grab. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the that's iTunes up, is it? homepage on, Good. The, on the podcast. We're a highly recommended, which is it's nice, to, nice to be in that position. Recommended by who? By iTunes? By, by iTunes. iTunes. God yeah. bless them. So, so they pick anyway. the week. Wow, yes. oh, that's lovely. So if you're listening to this for the first time... <laughs> You're probably wondering what the hell is going on. Well, this is this is pretty much how it works. You know, we this is as good as it gets. This is, this is as polished as it gets. This is the Word Podcast. I'm David Hepworth, and uh, sitting opposite me is uh, I'm Mark Allen. And at the wheels of steel, we have Fraser Lurie. And we are reconvened uh, once more to set to rights uh, all the burning issues. Popular music, popular culture, and what people did over Christmas, and all kinds of things. And also to ask for a bit of sympathy from everyone listening, for, for David Hepworth, who spent, uh, and his entire family, about two weeks horizontal. It's stupefied by swine flu. Yes, That's actually, what I'm telling people. Another, that gets you more sympathy, doesn't another it? Another sarky kind of uh, tweet from uh, Tim Sawula says, uh, says, had a nice month off. Very cheeky. I think so, you know. And, uh, well, that's that's choice, isn't it? When, when our glorious leader here has been on death's door. <laughs> Riven with mucus. <laughs> Riven with mucus, I like that. So what do you do for Christmas, Fraser? Um, I went to saw my mum, a lovely mum, yeah. Right. And uh, it was as festive as it always is, found <laughs> at uh, Chez Lurie. Is there, I picture you and your mum at uh, opposite ends of a long table and uh, reaching across to pull one cracker. Is that's that pretty much yeah. it, yeah, and exchange one present. In case she's skidding some cranberry sauce down, <laughs> it was, it was, down to the other end. It was worse this year because she'd had some kind of electrical problem, which meant there was no light in either the bathroom or the kitchen. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> but you still managed to uh, 
keep a bit of frivolity in the air. For as uh, brief amount of time yeah. as I could bear, yes. Mark some neighbours of mine, Christmas? some neighbours of mine, uh, used to go to their their in-laws, and their in-laws had a, a habit of um, putting all the vegetables through some kind of blender, which meant that all the food was for the Brussels sprouts was just a green, light green mush, and the potatoes <clears> were kind of like that. I don't know why they did. It. I think they probably just had very bad teeth or something. And the food looked like. Do you remember that scene in two thousand and one, A Space Odyssey, when supper arrives, <laughs> and you think, oh my god, it's just a little plastic tray with portions of stuff, all of which has been liquidised. And they said that was the worst thing about about that Christmas meal was it was having a meal without any texture at all. <laughs> but mine, no, uh, plenty of texture. I cooked a goose, Dave. I had to, I'm sorry, it's a tradition of the uh, word broadcast. We have to talk about uh, culinary uh, uh, issues because Fraser, of course, is a legendary gastronome and chef. And he'll be interested that I cooked a goose stuffed with celeriac and pears and sausage. How did you cope with the fat? Uh, well, we had to drain it off uh, frequently. And, in fact, I have to say I got an enormous cauldron of this stuff, which then separates out into three it layers, does, like yes. a weird kind of um, yeah, cocktail. <laughs> I don't know, what, I don't know what, what three layers are, but anyway. Yeah. While we're on food issues, this just in from Gagarin, another Twitter tweet, uh, says, what's your favourite soup? French onion. French onion. That's straightforward. Uh, I think it's probably a light consomme. Okay. Mulligatawny. Mulligatawny, OK. Just like saying it. <laughs> it's just, it's <laughs> a good word, isn't it? Straight out of a Woodhouse novel. <laughs> Can I say that our Christmas meal was uh, I mean, the main topic of conversation? I'm not proud of, actually, because you know, my children are far too old to be remotely interested in that. I just remember, and I miss them, those uh, Christmas lunches where the big issue was that someone had torn the head off a doll. Or, do you know what I mean? There was a, oh, right, some yes. little toy that wasn't working or a kite that had its one... A little rocket had been fired gloriously there. It was now... Dangling from a telephone line <laughs> with a tearful child underneath. <laughs> you remember? That? But we don't do that anymore. My eldest son had given one of his uncles a, a, a reggae compilation, and I started a conversation about Haile Selassie as I carved the goose. I said, I said think for just a second of that aeroplane landing, I think 1964, at Kingston, Jamaica, with uh, His Majesty the, the, the Emperor Haile Selassie on it, who has been forewarned that waiting for him at the airport is a huge collection of young... I don't think they were calling them Rastafarians in those days, actually. Uh, just young Jamaicans who believed that what they were going to see was the, the, the second coming of the Messiah. And among, of course, Bob Marley. This is true, isn't it? You remember Bob Marley and the gang go to... And we started this conversation, and this actually continued right up until the Christmas pud about, uh, about Selassie and Rastafari, which I thought was pretty good, yeah, really, yeah, yeah. for a conversation, you know, at Christmas lunch. So you had a jar Christmas. We had a jar. We did a righteous did Christmas. I, I, I and I had some I, second helpers. I and I enjoyed <laughs> your pudding. Yeah, we stepped forward. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> it was excellent. Oh, very good. I wish I could say ours was anything like so. Dave, just tell us a little bit about yours. It was just a great big... It sounded like a sort of ward, really, as if there were paramedics working around the clock. Yeah, I, 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 I tried to keep reasonably buoyant until about four o'clock on Christmas afternoon, and then I just sank into an armchair in a corner of the room and hoped everybody was just going, going to ignore me as I, you know, blew my nerves and, uh, and wallowed in self-pity. And rightly, we played a game. Which I, I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased people still play games, my ass. We played Balderdash, the hilarious bluffing game, TM. Do you know that? Oh, it's fantastic. It's like Call My Bluff. Do you know that game? But you have to get, you're given a, you know, like a name of somebody, J.W. Mulligatawney, right? And you have to guess what he was. And was he, um, you know, the inventor of the hamburger? Was he the first man to, um, you know, uh, juggle Frankfurters as an Olympic event or something? Oh, was he, he, play was he, for the was he a homunculus 
who was uh, shriveled and brought back and put in an exhibition from the Congo. Yeah, or did he play bass with Japan or whatever? And uh, then you have to write your answers. To it. Well, that, those are your answers. You have to guess which the, the right one is, you know. Or you have to define the meanings of words like interfrastically and what it means, you know. In fact, it's directly lifted from Blackadder. Very successful. So that was your... Oh, yes. What if we burnt log, uh, log fires and played Balderdash? That sounds very, very happy. Improved, it was very good. I'm glad, to, glad yes. to see that those <clears throat> things still go on. Yeah. So over the festive season, um, usual crop of uh, musicians passing on. Um, we managed to recognise the passing of Captain Beefheart in the in the issue that went to press. We did well the just issue before the issue Christmas. had gone. In fact, had gone to press, hadn't it? In fact, and uh, as is as we are glad to do, Dave, in the rigours of print journalism, we tore out a large section of the magazine, and David and myself, in fact, rolled up our sleeves and compiled in a very short space of time a tribute. It must have been a short space of time, because I've just read the captions uh, at the end, and I noticed it's exactly the same caption on two pictures. Oh, really? So you can see how rushed we must have been. Oh, but no, no, but it's an absolutely essential thing that the passing of, uh, of the artist formerly known as Captain Beefheart... It's very odd be. when somebody like Captain Beefheart dies, you know, because, you know, I remember when he was, he was as, just as culty as they come, you know within an area of music that was culty to begin with. <laughs> um, you know, it's pretty obscure. And then a guy like that dies in the year 2010, and suddenly your phone's ringing off the hook with Five Live and you know, the Daily Mirror or whatever. You think, how do you people even hear of this person? You know what I mean? That the, the, the kind of... The, the breadth of stuff that is now covered by... You know, uh, particularly 24-hour rolling news media. Anybody dies who ever had any level of celebrity. And, uh, and, you know, and they, he, they he... just leap onto it. And they don't quite know why they do it. No, that's right. And I think I, I read quite a few of the, of the tributes, and, and I'm not sure if they, the people actually looking after them were completely aware of what the point of him was, but they just knew he was an interesting story and they felt obliged to cover him. But the, the, the fascinating thing about him is that most people, most musicians, have sort of somehow kept themselves in the public frame. But, you know, this is a man who retired yes. and disappeared from Unique view. Unique case. Unique actually case. Retired. You know, but when people say they're going to retire, this is my last ever talk. He read, and in 1982, which let's not forget, it's very nearly 29 years ago, this man made his last rock and roll gesture and disappeared to a wood cabin in Eureka or uh, one in Oregon and uh, painted pictures and also nursed a, a terrible illness, but he really genuinely disappeared. And that was the thing that struck me as extraordinary. This, the whole thing was reactivated, wasn't it? Uh, even after a 28-year you know, period of, 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 of no sign of him at all. Suddenly, massive interest. Yeah. And, and, and then you have to deal with uh, people's misconceptions. I had this intriguing case, which I think I told you about, with the, with the Daily Telegraph. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Daily Telegraph rang me up. And he died on his death, was announced on the Friday. And I was in Marks and Spencer's on the Saturday. And my mobile went. And it was somebody I'd never met before saying, we need something, we need whatever, however many thousand words about, about Captain Beefheart by four o'clock. You, you said I'm at the veg store at the moment. I've still got to go to cheese and dairy. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I said, well, hang on, I'll ring you back. And I, I, I rung off and I spoke to my wife and said, they'll, you know, they've, I can't remember how much money it was, this sum of money for four o'clock. And she said, 
Yeah, well, you've got nothing else to do today. There was no football, you know. Cause it was, yeah, uh, it was a no cricket. frozen off. Yeah. So I rang him back and said, OK, my wife says I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I can do it if you give me another 100 quid or something. You know, as if she was my agent. And they said, fine. And... And I, I went home and wrote this, and they sent me an email say, saying, can you remember to mention all the people he influenced? Well, I got a bit of a bee in my bonnet about Captain Beefheart influencing people. I think there are very few people who he actually influenced. Even though everyone claims to They all claim to be influenced by Captain Beefheart. Who do you think he did influence? I think Tom Waits. Tom Waits, yeah. you could probably argue. Tom Waits' latter half of his career was changed by listening to Captain Beefheart. You can note that very clearly. Whereas... Millions of kind of pallid indie groups on the Peel program all claim John Peel. They all claim Beefheart influence because it sounds cool. You know, I don't think you can be influenced by Captain Beefheart because I think I think he had a unique musical personality. I think you know, there's a vastness about him that you you know it's ridiculous to, to claim that the average person tinkering on a musical instrument can ever reflect that kind of thing. He was too big. Anyway, the point is, they say, can you mention this? Can you mention the Beatles and so? They get mentioned the Beatles. I thought this is odd. I don't know. I think any connection between Captain Beefheart and the Beatles. So I wrote this thing. I sent it off. And they came back and they said, "Great, lovely. Can you can you point a sentence about hey, you know how he influenced blah blah, blah the Beatles?" And I very carefully wrote a sentence. But didn't did not the contain the word Beatles <laughs> anywhere. In it. I said, you know, though many people claim to be influenced by him, you know, you could argue that Tom Waits genuinely was, and. Um, Piece appears in the paper the following day. Influenced many people, including the Beatles. You think, how, out of this cavernous ignorance about the subject of Captain Beefheart, did you manage to produce one fact which isn't a fact? But it has to be said that a, a vast amount of mainstream media has hung around the best entry point you can possibly get the story. The best entry point is, you know the thing you really like? Right? That thing, yeah, that, that yes. her, Kylie Minogue, yes. right? influenced by Captain Beefheart. Yeah. Never heard of him. Read the article. <laughs> there would be no Kylie Minogue without <laughs> Captain Beefheart. So She's the kind of avant-garde, free-range expressionist, isn't she? Or, or not, but never mind. Captain yeah. Beefheart. This is it. I've noticed this particularly, the, the, the place that's really guilty of this, the BBC website. Oh, right. Uh, the, the entertainment coverage of the BBC website. If anybody dies, you know what I mean? If Pine Top Perkins, the blues piano player, falls off his perch tomorrow, I think he probably did two years ago anyway, but, you know... There would be they no Arctic Monkeys, no Kasabian. They'll get, they'll get in one step <laughs> No to Robbie Kasabian. Williams. <laughs> they take that. Let's take our tiny, tiny little world here and let's somehow try and relate it to this... Jamie Cullum. <laughs> what a poorer place the planet would be. <laughs> yeah. I know. Actually, the one thing I, re- I re- desperately regret, actually, it, it, because we had to write that tribute very, very quickly, didn't we, in just a matter of hours, actually, was I missed out a salient point. I think it did. Maybe you mentioned it, actually, in your bit. But uh, I missed out the point, which I'd forgotten, which Beefheart couldn't play a musical instrument. No. Now, I'd forgotten that because everyone understands that, in fact, you write about it very, very, very clearly. Uh, they understand that he's a kind of dictator who goes in there and he says, the wing deal fingerling, I want a noise that sounds like this. This is the, the colour I'm looking for. Yeah. And these people are the technicians, so the conduits through which he can paint this picture. And I think you can apply artistic uh, parallels, actually, the way he painted and the way he, um, and the way he composed and, and recorded music. But uh, what I'd forgotten was that most people, you know, you've got bad leaders like, I don't know, Damon Albarn clearly very much in charge, but also the prime musical force of the group a brilliant multi-instrumentalist, you know I mean, most of the time, the guy writing the music, 
is a musician. He yeah. may get other people to play his parts for him or her, but they, they're not necessarily a non-musician. This guy used to go in and say, he, he, literally, he literally couldn't sit down at the piano and play the chords. He couldn't take in any of the most basic rudimentary structures of a song, apart from a lyric, obviously, uh, apart from to sing a melody. And he would sing about it or, or give them some indication of what rhythm he wanted. And actually, when B-Fart died, which I think you did too, actually, I, the first thing I did, apart from rummaging around in the attic and trying to find a cassette of, a, of an interview I did with him, which I've republished something, actually, uh, was to dig out some of his old records. And I had to go on a long car journey. So I must have, maybe I must have a little compilation. And I said, my God, they're good. Oh, yes. I couldn't believe they are really how good, good these records are. Yeah. And uh, when you listen to it, knowing that all five or six musicians working around this voice in the middle... Um, simply had to interpret from from the most abstract of material um, the point that he was trying to make and the way he wanted to make that and express it the way he wanted to sound. You've got to admit, you've got to take your hat off to these people. But they, they must have been immensely cooperative people in that if somebody approaches a musician and says, I need something that sounds a bit like, you know, it sounds a bit blue, <laughs> you know, the musician has two choices. They can either go like this yeah. and play something or they can go no I don't know what you mean yeah. can you explain Completely. further and they must have been in the former category Completely. they must have been the kind of giving individuals that, that produce something yeah. to go into that into that vacuum that he could build on you know another thing I, I, I found out actually subsequently my neighbour Robin Hitchcock's a huge um uh, a beef art enthusiast you know and uh, he was talking about um, he met several members of the magic band um, and he said the interesting thing about those guys he said I feel a great deal of sympathy for them because they um, if you're in the magic band you're just, a, you're just a working musician right and then you meet Captain Beefheart and you're taking this band and you're rechristened you're no longer um, Jeff Cotton you're now called, from now on, your antennae Jimmy Siemens that is your name right now already that's had a major, major shift as regards people's, um, you know, the way they deal with you. You're now somehow blessed with that kind of magic dust that's come off Captain Beefheart. And therefore, all his disciples with their, with their curious names were, in a sense, lumbered with this huge weight of expectation from other people. And I think a lot of them found that really hard to, to deal with because they weren't just jobbing musicians. They were suddenly by rock fans, probably rock press, people like us probably actually, massively over-amplified, massively over-glorified. It must have been very, very hard for them because they didn't have any of the actual, well, not the people themselves had much financial gain from it, but they didn't have any of the kind of central core of no, success. No. They were just the kind of acolytes. Yeah. And I think a lot of those guys find it very difficult to adjust to kind of normal life. For the rest of the, they might have been in that band just for, for, for you know, for, for a year and a half or something, but that's the one year and a half that defined their entire lives. They'll always be the winged eel finger. I was intrigued reading uh, that, uh, an interview with Ted Templeman, the great producer who produced loads of huge commercial hits for, you know, I don't know, the Doobie Brothers and Van Morrison, Montrose and all kinds of people. But he, he produced one Beefheart album, um, the uh, Claire Spot, which is probably his most commercial record and he made a very good point about Beefheart he said he wasn't just intimidating in the studio he was physically intimidating <laughs> you know the, the well, looked like he was going to lamp you were kind of frightened of him you know and there are these stories about when Raikuda was in the band you know the people pulling guns oh yeah yeah 
during rehearsals. Well, know. didn't you go and see him at a concert in the Albert Hall in the early 70s when, when yeah. he had the New Scratch group? And the reason being that there'd been some kind of group meeting. I know, that was later. That was 1975. All oh, right, and they'd all just said, you know, I can't deal with this. No, this, well, this, they, this... we tried to get them to come on tour around about unconditionally guaranteed and obviously gave them the, the usual pathetic deal. Yeah. And, they, and they, they said, no, we're staying at home. And so he had to tour with uh, a group... Uh, a really kind of middle-of-the-road American rock group, whose actual name I've forgotten at the time. Uh, they're rather, rather puzzled-looking uh, figures with, uh, with long, straight, blonde hair who clearly never done, never met anybody like Campton Beefheart in their lives. And that was, uh, that was uh, a somewhat disappointing tour. But, yeah, they'd obviously said at that point, this far and no further, you know. But then they did end up going back to him. Yeah, well, they, think they probably had a lot of belief in him, which is... Uh, yeah. But he was a hard man to love, as I think that these articles will make clear. <laughs> I mean, I've come across as unaffectionate. Not, uh, not, not in the least. Not, not, not so that's Captain Beefheart. It's featured in the uh, new issue of Word magazine, which will be out, uh, well, as probably copies with the subscribers this weekend. Which we can, and the rest will be on Thursday. If you have the good sense to subscribe, you'd, you'd be getting earlier than most people. The Word, a magazine, a website, a podcast... A way of life. More questions from the Massive. This from Whole Hog, who I think has given us these questions before, actually. He's presented that put us on the horns of our dilemma. So clearly we refused to answer them the first time. No, I think it's a different one. He, right, says, he only asks the same questions. He, he says, Duran <laughs> Duran or Spandau Ballet? Discuss. Duran <laughs> Duran. <laughs> Oh, Spandau Ballet. It's a lose-lose situation. It's Spandau Ballet. I've got on, why? Because they had one good record, Duran Duran didn't have any. Oh, oh. All right, now, fighting talk, though. One good record Come surely on. was work till your muscle bound. <laughs> yes, and I am here to tell you, Fraser, and let the record reflect that when they first played that in a group called, a uh, club called Heaven, I think it was, in the arches yeah. of the embankment. It's still there. Cross. Is it still there? Heaven? Yeah. Why? I was I was in the front row. Was, I wasn't wearing a tartan frock or a <laughs> big old blouse or you know a tea towel on my shoulder or whatever. Or a pair of pixie boots. But I was <laughs> I was there, probably my arms crossed. No, I I saw, I thought they were really good actually. They're yeah, really good. Gary Kemp, who I met the other day, is just the most tremendous fellow. Really, really bright and interesting. Wonderful chapter in Paul Denoy's book about London. We interviewed Sir Gary Kemp. Yeah whose grandparents ran a little stall outside of the theatre, around the corner from here, selling chestnuts outside the theatre. And Gary Kemp, I was only talking about with my wife the other, uh, the other evening when we were strolling through Fitzroy Square, which is one of the nicest squares in London. Very nice square. Very nice, quite near Warren Street. Yeah. Uh, tube station. Pretty, very unspoiled, actually. Hardly any through traffic, I think, in Fitzroy Square. It's very yeah, beautiful. It's only one side with traffic, and the rest is uh, cobbled. OK, yes. And she said, this is lovely. Wouldn't it be great to live here? And I said, I'll tell you who lives here. There Gary, goes the neighbourhood. Gary Kemp lives <laughs> in Fitzroy Square. He does. And so, yeah, that's the that, that's how you can tell the one member of the band who wrote the songs yeah. gets to live in Fitzroy Square. The rest are, are wherever. Yeah, they're just, all over the place. They're in a sleeping bag, so yeah. on somebody's couch. <laughs> so you would say Spano Ballet over Duran Duran? You've got you? to be honest, yes. And absolutely. a singer versus a non-singer yeah. as well. Okay. I was trying something rather shrill and unattractive about Spandau Ballet, as compared to the warm, funky sound. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say you're on thin ice here. <laughs> I love the fact that Duran Duran's records. If you listen to records like uh, Wild Boys, there was there's no kind of um, there's no kind of democracy about this group. They all think that they are individual uh, instrumental geniuses, <laughs> right. and therefore the bass part played by what's his name, John Taylor, is ridiculous. 
ridiculously high, ridiculously overcomplicated, uh, and all the all the instruments are fighting for attention. Or at least in uh, in Spandau Ballet, they had the, the good sense to just relax it all and try and tell Squeezy Norman that Squeezy, you can't play the saxophone. Mate. <laughs> Appear in pictures with a saxophone. That's different. Don't play the fucking thing on stage. <laughs> Squeezy, as he was known. Spandau Ballet made the catastrophic error, which, and I once saw them play it on Charing Cross Road. Um, at the height of their fame, they made two fundamental errors. One was they had a transparent flat drum kit. You know what I mean? Perspex. Oh, that's oh, not, doesn't look like real music. It's not horrid, <laughs> horrid thing. And the other one, to make it even worse, is that they were early adopters of that grisly trend. For having guitars that had no headstocks, headstocks. Oh, yeah. rotten! Bill Wyman bought one of those eventually. Oh, yeah. yeah. If they've been caught in a door or something, <laughs> <laughs> been amputated. The Manx cats. <laughs> 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 vestigial. Wrong, wrong, wrong. But also, if you see someone playing one of those guitars, you just prepare yourself. You grit your teeth that you're going to be have the trousers bored off. Somebody's probably got five strings. Or worse, I saw a group the other day. The bass player actually had six strings, which was worse because you can then play chords. Oh, Oh, that's rotten, isn't it? You can you can finger pick streets of London. Talking about very elaborate bass parts takes me to a really intriguing little clip, which is on the something for the weekend. uh, email which Fraser sends out every week and sent out. Very good it is too. Very good it is too. Highly this recommend. has got a beautiful clip of Mama Cass, oh, yes. Joni Mitchell and Mary Travers out of Peter, Paul and Mary doing uh, Bob Dylan's I Shall Be Released in 1969 on a TV show. On an what is clearly an American variety show? I suppose it, it probably is. It was probably Mama Cass's show. And it, it's a wonderful reminder that that brief period of time when people like that had shows that were kind of done like variety shows, and they were lit like variety shows, and they had fantastic costumes like variety shows, and the three of them were singing I Shall Be Released beautifully, with the, the assistance, if we can call it that, of a studio orchestra, um, with a bass player who clearly, clearly thinks, this is all a bit dull, <laughs> yeah. unless I provide yeah. more twiddly bits yeah. in between. And so you have these golden voices, you know. The None more golden than Mama Some Screaming buffoon. out to be left alone. <laughs> yes, Some buffoon going... Yes. <laughs> 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 absolutely. Sprawling, sprawling. The only decent response of any decent thinking musician is, let me play Turn as the quietly volume as down. possibly. Uh, yeah. Maybe not play at all. <laughs> yes, right. Just sit down. You know? I know. But uh, you, you can go and find that, I'm sure. Talking about turning the volume fantastic. down, let me try a new experiment. I want people to hear, if they can, <laughs> the sound coming from next time. Let's take the pop shield off this microphone. This is, can you hear this sound? That's the sound of Word Magazine's advertising department. You're working on, <laughs> on a Friday afternoon. Friday afternoon. That's how they sell advertising. There's a massive party going on. Battling the recession. Yeah. Did that come out? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Okay, yeah, go on. Also on that on that mailer, I, which I watched this morning, is that terrific BBC documentary about swing. Yes. Uh, Ninety-minute uh, oh, history. Oh, I wish I'd of, seen that. Uh, well, you can it's still, on the see it on the. Oh, iPad. I'd love to see it's that. Still, still there. It's I've, very, I've it's just formed good. a swing band. Oh, no. Oh, oh, joy. Oh, joy, yes. I can see you're all thrilled by that. Yeah. Oh, we're terrific. We start with Louis Jordan and his timpani five. Uh, <laughs> is you is or is you ain't my baby. Straight on from that, we go to Fats Waller's Ain't Misbehaving. Right. It's good stuff. To well, take what's me. the name of this band? We haven't got a name yet, actually. Okay. For the moment. At the moment, the, 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 perhaps the, the readers could suggest. Yes, they could suggest that our singer is called Millie. So the, 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 we can't be called Thoroughly Modern Millie. That's all I can tell you. 
That's as far as we've got. I can so see what, you guys are in trouble. What do you trouble. play in this? I'm the acoustic guitar player. I play mm-hmm. very difficult jazz parts, which, are, uh, which require me to practice in the bathroom in the really? evening. <laughs> so you don't feel that you... We are a guitar player. Our lead guitarist is a kind of Django Reinhardt stylist. It's absolutely fantastic. I call John good. Butler. It's very good. Yeah, Dave, sorry. <laughs> I can see Dave no, no, shivering no. here. Anyway, one thing I was very taken by in the film was they're talking about uh, during the height of the swing boom. The music publishers said to the musicians that they had to write lyrics for the songs because obviously they had nothing to sell if they, you know, if they didn't have songs yeah. that they could publish the sheet music of. And so things like St. Louis Blues, you know, always have a verse of uh, lyrics written, generally came in the middle of the song. That's right, yeah. That's right. It's, it's a really curious idea. And it reminded me of my favourite uh, music business skullduggery tale which is about the theme from Star Trek, the TV series Star Trek, uh, produced by um, the Gene Roddenberry, who died a few years ago, so I can now say this. Um, And he hired a, a composer to write a theme for it, and then so the person did, you know, swirling orchestral theme. And then when he finished it, Roddenberry gave him, handed him a piece of paper and said, and there's the lyrics. <laughs> and the guy said, well, he hasn't got any lyrics. He said, it has now. No. And there's lyrics. I want my 20%. <laughs> 50. Yeah. Uh, and these lyrics were penned by Gene Roddenberry, were never performed, never used on the series at all, but are lodged as half the, uh, you no. know, the copyright of the wow. song. So the producer could have... Half the half the you know half the revenue from have uh, these lyrics been published? I'd you, love to read. Oh, them. you can find them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they, they I've exist. got a grudging admiration for that. Actually, to be honest. <laughs> they, but you're right because you think of those jazz songs like Salt Peanuts and things. I think the only lyric is just somebody at one point just goes Salt Peanuts, Salt, salt Peanuts. peanuts. <laughs> that's, it, you know, that's the lyric. Fifty percent, please. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. So they got something they could, yeah. they could sell in the high streets of America. That's it. To boldly go where no man has been. Well, it's probably. <laughs> it's probably it's probably, I love yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fraser Lurie sings Swing. <laughs> <laughs> Further questions that. from the Massive. I think it's Johnny Waite who wants to know the answer to this question. He says, you are Decker in 1961. I think it's 62 anyway, but no one wonder. Do you sign the Beatles or do you not sign the Beatles? Mark Allen. It was 62, I think. And I've got, 62. I'm afraid to say, I've got a... a it was in the a, snow, wasn't it? Bootleg. 62. Yeah, I've got a bootleg of, of, of course, the, the Decker tapes. Um, which I think some of which now appeared on, on Anthology, but I paid a lot of money for them about 20 years now, like an idiot. But if anyone who's heard this will know, they play Three Cool Cats, they play Shake of Araby, uh, they play uh, Come On Little Girl, they play, they're mostly show, they're mostly musical, they're kind of musical show tunes. And I suppose Brian Epstein would have suggested to them that they should keep their options as wide as possible yeah. because you might have got to deal with with Decca Records because they liked this particular aspect of your song catalogue i.e. the Sheikh of Araby and you could do lots of kind of novelty records and hopefully once you got your record deal you could to do your own stuff I mean I guess they were just trying to keep that but, but when you hear this thing you think this is a group without any kind of identity at all and a not very good drummer yeah. But with some wonderful singers. So uh, that's, it's not ridiculous to say, but I can got a bit of sympathy, actually, for the I people who turned the, sympathy, the Beatles down. Because you, I mean, and what, it was, was the, what was the reason given? Well... Oh, we mentioned uh, guitar groups. The things this the, is the thing that's always puzzled me. Is, what, what guitar groups were the they previously? Was I, it think, the, I think, well, the, the, the national sense of what a guitar group was 
was formed by the Shadows. Yeah. And it was four guys, you know, somebody playing the, the, the drums on the yeah. back. And um, listen, this is, this is you know, a, a, a line of an aside at a meeting that has been <laughs> turned into yeah. this thing Mythology. that we still discuss 50 years yeah. later. Uh, they say groups of guitars are on their way out to Mr. Epstein. And they might have been right, actually. You know, on the basis of the shadows, you know, they they, they probably felt they'd, they'd had their day, that kind of thing. I think the biggest argument as to why it was a good idea for Decker not to sign the Beatles is that they didn't have George Martin there. They didn't have anybody but they weren't at Decker. the Beatles, were they? Yeah, well, possibly, yeah, possibly. Are. The, the, the magical thing about the Beatles is this: these four guys, or three, then Ringo suddenly came across the one person on God's earth who could, who could hear something in them that, that chimed with his personal experience and could, could then see a way forward as to how they could make records together. I think, I think that's the thing you can, just cannot underestimate. Hey, I mean, if Decker George had signed Martin, him, George Martin wouldn't have been in the picture in the Beatles. He wouldn't have been anywhere near. And Decker, you know, they were not that kind of record company. Decker, it worked at EMI because EMI had these labels like Parlophone, which is the, this bit over here that did the odd comedy stuff. And Columbia was actually the main pop label. And they weren't auditioned for Columbia. It was for Parlophone. It was kind of as odd as, you know, I don't know, Going in nowadays and, uh, and and meeting this kind of speech recording bit of the record division, rather than but the, wasn't the there another uh, fantastically serendipitous dimension to that, which is that is that they were enormous fans of his through the goons because they were all yeah, huge yeah. goons. And so when they told that George Martin was the person who's going to come and audition them, they were unbelievably polite, friendly, yeah. adoring, cooperative. Uh, which they might not have been, but uh, I, I don't. I certainly don't blame Decker for that. I don't no, not in the slightest. Yeah, and then six months later, in a kind of panic, they signed the Rolling Stones, and they did quite well out of that as well. Did really well out of that. <laughs> but I mean, I, if you ever, I've got. I mean, I'm afraid to say I've got. I've got tapes of the Beatles playing in uh, you know, the Star Club in Hamburg, playing Red Sails in the Sunset, and and uh, obviously not terribly good quality. But they are just, just a, a, a fairly average-sounding rock and roll band. Clearly, they put on an incredible show. And that was the reason that they were so successful, playing their seven-hour shifts full of amphetamines, throwing themselves around all over the place. But they aren't anything particularly exceptional. Uh, Horizontal Rich well, says, points out to us, David Bowie is 64 tomorrow. Is that it from him? Is that it from him? Fraser? Um, I've never been a Bowie fan. Never, do, you, do you think, observing the kind of, you know, the, the, the activity or lack of it, is that his lot? I, don't, I, I, I think we may not hear another record, but I think he'll do other things. He'll do literature or art or something, I imagine. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he will. What do you think, Mark? That's very difficult to say, because you, uh, one shouldn't particularly trust uh, rumours circulating, but there are, have been a lot of persistent rumours about him having ill health problems. He Certainly, we know he had a heart attack. We know that. He had a heart attack about uh, five years ago, am I right? and was advised not to return to live performance because it put him under such a huge amount of stress. Understandable. Yeah, So I don't think he's got the appetite for that. He's certainly made unbelievable quantities of cash. 
Um, the fact he that sold his Bowie bonds. Sold they? his Bowie bonds at the right time. He <laughs> sold Bowie, Bowie bonds. He sell them at the right time. Yeah, bye, bye, bye. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, just the fact you said he was 64 just reminded me that here it is, in fact. This, we found these pictures, which are published in the next issue, uh, of Bowie when he's 24. I don't know, maybe it's to do with getting old, but do you ever look back at how young people were? Bowie, in this picture, this is uh, a week after his son Joe is born, or Zoe, as he was known then. He's now Duncan Jones, of course. Uh, Bowie's 24 years old. Angie, his wife, is 21. That seems yes. very young, doesn't it? Yes. And there is Bowie, and I recommend that you look at these pictures. They're so terrific. Bowie is wearing... They describe what he's wearing. It's a Quentin Crisp, gigantic hat, isn't I it? Think voluminous uh, shirt and, uh, you know... Uh, it's a blouse. Shop, shoplifting trousers there. The trousers could house a family of six, couldn't they? It's absolutely astonishing. And there he is, proudly displaying his, his, new, uh, his new son for the press. So, Worth seeing. Yeah, well... I don't know. I, I don't think... I don't, well, I think you're right. He won't do anything live because it's... No, I think he's got too, a genuine health problem. You can't dabble in live no. anymore. You know. I think he'll curate himself, basically. Yes! <laughs> it's not the station-to-station reissue. He'll do... Lots of that kind there, of thing will appear, There'll be I a think. bit of that dabblage, won't yeah. there? Yeah, but... The other, thing, the other thing about it, I think... I don't know if I probably said this before in the podcast, but I do think it's... The, 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 if you're going to keep going... See, McCartney and Elton John are really good examples of this. McCartney and Elton John are in it to win. They're in it to win now, even yes, now. Elton true. John has uh, put out a record, actually, I thought a very good record before Christmas. Didn't do as well as he wanted to do. They're re-promoting that record with a massive marketing spend, and they're, they're, he's not happy with the job position. <laughs> he wants a bigger job position. It matters that much to him. And I really admire that, actually. And as I remember mentioning to you before, I interviewed Paul McCartney in 1982, and he was, had a new single out with, with Michael Jackson. It was a huge deal, the two of them together. How could that not be number one? It was called Say, Say, Say. And he put the release back a week because he was frightened of coming up against Human League and ABBA. And I can remember thinking, why can't Paul McCartney? Surely he's... No. Yeah, this, he, he told me he would... He told me, I believe, that he would lie awake at night waiting for what they called the midweeks... Well, on Wednesday, which will tell you what the chart position was like to be on Sunday. And I think, I think you, if you're David Bowie, you're either going to think, I'm going to go for this 100%. Oh, you've retired. Like Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen goes for it 1,000%. Yeah. He's either going to be as much of the concept of Bruce Springsteen as, as you ever were, or he's probably going to knock it on the head and just be a bloke playing acoustic guitar. Yeah, yeah. And I really like that. I, I don't see why he should come in in a kind of... In a kind of half-hearted way, you know. <laughs> what? Am I sounding like some no, terrible no, reactionary old boy? You're, you're talking about Elton John. It's very funny. I must mention this. I happened to see over Christmas. I only only had the kind of the the energy to just watch the odd video and read the odd book. And I finally saw Tantrums and Tiaras. The uh, I've still not seen it, and oh, it's brilliant. Doesn't somebody wave? The film, yeah. the film made by David uh, Furnish. Uh, it's twenty years ago now. Fifteen years ago. Behind the scenes, warts and all, with Elton, um, it's it's absolutely priceless, and uh, he goes, <laughs> and he's completely incapable of relaxing. Can't do it at all, and so you know, at one point they filmed at a very fabulous hotel, on the the, at the Cap, you know, in, in the south of France, just gorgeous hotel, and David Furnish is doing the interviews, so. So, do you think it'd ever be possible to come on holiday without your, you know, your valet, your security, your cook, your tennis pro, <laughs> takes his tennis pro <laughs> on holiday with him? This guy. Nice you know, work if you can get it. Very nice work yeah. if you can get it, you know, because in case Elton just wants to, you know, yeah, I mean, knock his a, backhand. have a hit for about an hour. A knockabout, yeah. 
And and at one point they go onto the hotel tennis court, you know, and just whacking it back and forth. And Elton's clearly quite a useful player, certainly was in those days, you know. And then at one, and he's on the other side of the net, and you just see him stop, ignore it, whack a ball right out of sight, take a racket and just fling it at the wire. No, it somebody's waving or something, it was and distracting. And then just picks up everything, and goes heads back to his room, back up in the lift. And, and eventually Furnish gets him there and says, so what was bothering you? He says, fucking woman was waving at you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all he's taken with Elton, you know. Just somebody's waving at me. <laughs> and he's just, he's so compulsive, you know. And, and there he's... Can I ask a question? He was, takes, he, was he taking drugs and drinking? No, no, he's over, after dr- that. Over the drugs. Oh, oh, definitely, oh, over the drugs and drinking. And um, he, he just, he, he instead took all the energy he used to spend drugs and drinking and invested it in shopping, I think. <laughs> and, and, so, and so there he is in this fantastic hotel room. And, and he says, take us round your wardrobe, Elton. And there is one... That's a long walk. Huge room. That's a day's ride on a fresh horse. There there are more clothes than... We are in the fashion cupboard (laughs) of Mix Mag magazine. There are way more clothes in Elton's holiday wardrobe than would ever be in in a fashion cupboard. To give you some idea of how big it is, he has four separate drawers... It's a special made, especially made carry-on wardrobe. Four special drawers for sunglasses. Oh my god! So he must oh have a hundred pairs of sunglasses with him to take on holiday. Yes, because he's obviously just—he's the kind of person who can't relax if he doesn't feel he's got absolutely everything he Every has. Every sunglass and course, option available. There's, there's, the, over the Christmas, of course, the, there's the news that you know that they they've had this this child via a surrogate. You know, Elton John and David Furnish, and and, uh, and the thing I can't help thinking is is nothing to do with sexual orientation or or, or uh, you know surrogacy or anything like that. It's just Elton. How is there possibly going to be room in your life? <laughs> you know what I mean for. You know, because anybody who's had children yeah. knows that yeah. whatever else you had in your life we, is immediately thrown away. We've got children. You, you've got sunglasses. Yes. Just, just <laughs> stick to that. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you know where you stand with sunglasses. <laughs> Don't give you a lot of lip either. Whatever you have They're in life. They're not stick on the carpet. Whatever <laughs> you have in life at the point up to when you have children goes away, yeah. doesn't it? Completely and then if you're lucky... You kind of pick up the pieces yeah. of it twenty years later. That's so if I miss it, it's shattered in a corner of your life, don't you? That's you know, so, we used so to have true. one of those things. I can before remember talking to yeah. Because <laughs> uh, how do those things? How can it possibly coincide? Coincide that level of, of kind of obsession that you know? Because Furnish says to him in this interview, really good interview. He says, "There's a lovely walk down there across, across the gardens, over the cliffs." We could go there later in the day. Nobody will bother you. It's a beautiful place to go for a walk. Do you think you'd ever go? He says, no. <laughs> he says, why not? He says, don't fucking want to. <laughs> now, now, at some point, you know, five or six years' time, he's blessed. As a child, he's yeah. going to say, Dad, yeah. Elton, Reg, whatever, yeah. Yeah. can we go and kick a ball over there? What was he going to say? Yeah. No, I don't want to. Don't fucking want to. <laughs> Dad, don't, don't, don't use language like that. <laughs> oh, Dad, don't. <laughs> or, or he'll call up Watford and arrange for the pitch to be hired for it. It's so true. Do that. 
that. Can I can you? remember. I remember friends of mine who were older, older than me when, when I became a dad. So sort of saying, "Oh, don't you feel you've had to kind of give up a bit of your lifestyle?" But I was, you know, give my tw- I, I was in my twenties when I had a lifestyle. When, when, I, when I was a dad, I didn't have any lifestyle to give no, up. No, no. The point about Elton John is there has never been on God's earth historically, with possible exception of Imelda Marcos, anyone with Creases. more lifestyle <laughs> and creases. <laughs> Nero, <laughs> creases. Elton goes around to creases place trying to borrow a tenner every now and again. But then, and Nero, yeah, all right. Apart from Nero and the Romans, and yeah. <laughs> 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 There's been never been anyone with more to give up. As you say, just in sheer tonnage of sunglasses alone. I mean, the man... Oh, oh, the stories about the mansions he has all over the world that have to have flowers in every room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? And, and addictions to shopping and stuff like that. I mean, at some point, he's got to read a bedtime story, though. At some point, he's got to grill some fish fingers, isn't he? <laughs> you've got to di- dip a little soldier in a, in a, in a boiled egg. Is he going to change a nappy? Is he going to change a nappy? No, that's, would he? That's impossible to I imagine. I think the nappy stage is probably the easiest bit, actually, because you, you, I, think you, I think you can sub- subcontract the parental duties at that point. Okay. I think when they're six, seven, eight, that's it's true. a lot harder. No, it's, it, it, it's when you want good, solid paternal advice <laughs> from someone you can trust and lean on. And suddenly, who owes interview? It's only old Reg, isn't it? It's Reg. <laughs> Dad, have you got any regrets? Don't stop me. Oh, <laughs> terrible. Anyway, it's you a haven't fant- done a bad thing, Father. <laughs> it's a fantastic little film. You should. Oh uh, no, no, I'd love to. It sounds absolutely it. brilliant. And uh, so, what else to report? We won the Ashes this morning. Very nice. And uh, readers have been in touch from Australia, begging us not to mention it on the podcast. Perhaps we should. <laughs> <laughs> So we won't Offering that voice. enormous financial bribes, <laughs> inducements. Um, so we won't mention that we've... What else is to mention? We've got another Word in Your Ear gig coming up on February the 1st. Uh, at the Lexington, across the road from... This is Wilco. Uh, this Wilco is Johnson. Wilco. Wilco Johnson. Yeah, that so we got how extremely Alice good Walker. will that be? Uh, and somebody else whose name I've forgotten and you've forgotten as well. But the usual intimate... Experience that'll be very good. Uh, collector's items of gigs, Norman Watroy on um, base. Uh, there's details of how to get tickets on the website. Uh, what else have I got written down here? Playground rumors. Oh, that's just a piece that I want to run. I just, I just, it's one of those weird things. I got back from Christmas, and I found a load of um, a load of messages on my phone, they were nearly all from me. Uh, made while driving cars through 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 snow-filled landscapes, having ideas for the next issue, <laughs> and uh, one of them was playground. I don't know why I was thinking about when you were a kid. There was always a rumor about rock stars at school. Most of them, I have to say, are pretty pretty perverted and disgusting. But you know, they mostly involve um, stomach bumps. Yeah, yeah, they do really. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, without wishing to put too far. But I suppose we're collecting. And it's a difference between an urban myth and a rumour. An urban myth is kind of, um, you know, is is um, Keith Richards has his blood changed eight times a year. Yeah, or something. Yeah. That's different, really. That's just a sort of um, a, 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 a piece of disinformation that's just been somehow put into the press. But I think people know what I mean by playground rumours. You know, it's, um, you know, Prince has had a couple of ribs removed so he can perform. <laughs> well, no, why would he? Why? I can't. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> It's too awful to... If anyone can remember any playground, they're, they're, they're those things that just fester, don't they? They're just, they're just weird little rather... Mostly very twisted and strange. And interesting, uh, okay. I think. Well, yeah. So, so if you've got any, send them in. Send them in. Send them in, please. Uh, and uh, we should congratulate, belatedly, Richard Thompson on getting an MBE. Congratulations. He did yeah. in the yeah, uh, New Year's Honours list. Good man. Uh, about time, too. He would look good with medals, wouldn't he? He probably with would. His, with his beret. His beret. Yeah. <laughs> 
backward <laughs> salute. Yeah. It looks like a Chelsea pensioner as it is. Yeah. It? Yeah. It's very shoulders, show them off, show them off. That's right. <laughs> Am I hurting you, soldier? I want to be. I'm standing on the back of your hair. <laughs> Get it cut. <laughs> Remake of it. It ain't half hot with Richard Thompson. Oh, that's a brilliant joining idea. Joining the concert party with a ukulele. At the end there, he'd be perfect. Elton John is the Wilfred Bramble character. What's his name? Lofty. No, Wilfred Bramble. No, not Wilfred Bramble. What's his name, the guy who played Lofty? Don uh, Winsor Davis. Winsor Davis. No, Lofty. Uh, Don Estelle. And uh, Winsor Davis, the Sergeant Major. Uh, anything further to add? Uh, I'm not sure this will get out in time, but there's a word readers drinks this evening, if you're listening to this on Friday, oh, with right, uh, the Prince Arthur and Eversholt Street and Euston. And you're, you're allowed to buy Fraser a drink. It's compulsory. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. Hi, everybody. This is Tumani Jabate from Mali, Cora Players. I wish you a happy New Year's. All the best. Can you please listen to these new songs um, for the New Year's? the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with quince go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365 day returns Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.